So uh, we're in Psalm 2 this uh, Advent. Um, we're going to spend all four weeks. Psalm 2 is actually sort of neatly divides itself into four, uh, three verse sections. So it's really an easy psalm to preach a four week series on. So we'll be four, one to three last week, then two to, I mean, uh, four to six this week, and so on. Um, the reason that we're focusing on Psalm 2 during Advent is because, because Psalm 2 is one of the most direct and clear messianic psalms. That is the psalms where the Messiah is pointed to. And the Messiah, of course, is the anointed one or the Christ. Last week, we looked at the first three verses, which talk about that rebellious hatred of mankind toward God and their desire to escape from being under his rule. And today, we come to the second three verses, as I said. But before we get to that, last week, we talked about that Psalm 2 is part of a larger cluster of messianic prophecies which came at this point in history in the day of King David who wrote this psalm. In fact, Psalm 2 is really an elaboration of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. But let me, so let me go back and give you a little bit more information about this promise that God made to David that's so significant. Just before he died, the prophet Jacob, I'm sorry, the prophet Jacob, the patriarch Jacob blessed his 12 sons. You find it in Genesis 49. But he gave a special blessing to his son Judah. It's in verse 9 and 10 of Genesis 49. He referred to Judah as a lion's cub. That is, as one who would grow up to be a lion. And then he explained, after his family, that is, uh, Jacob's family became a nation, they would be ruled by kings. And those kings would come forth from the tribe of Judah. Well, 700 years later, David became the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy when he became the first king from the tribe of Judah. And as king, David conquered the city of Jerusalem, Jebus, as it was called then, which was on the top of Mount, the flat-topped mountain called Mount Zion. And he turned it into the capital city of the promised land, Israel and built his palace there. And then God gave him the promise in 2 Samuel 7. God promised David that after David was gone, that God would raise up one of David's offspring to rule on his throne forever. And God would be a father to this one. And this one would be God's son. And thus, God would establish David's throne forever. Now, the mystery of this promise was in the forever. 
How can any mortal man rule on a throne forever? And thus we see that the promise is too small for it to refer to just a human, an ordinary human person. It could not refer just to a mere man. And that brings us to Psalm 2, which is built on God's promise to David. So I'm going to read the whole thing, but I will highlight the part that we're focusing on today. So first I'll read the part we focused on last week. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now today's section, which begins here, tells us God's response to man's hatred and rebellion and his attempt to escape. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So that's the part we're talking about today, but I'm going to read the rest now. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a putter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so let's, let's focus a little bit on these three verses, four to six, in Psalm 2. In 1 through 3, all the kings of the, nation, of the earth are united against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a pretty impressive force. If even a few of the uh, powerful on earth were engaged on an assault on any one of our homes, we would be quite afraid. Even if one did. But if is God afraid in light of this massive force that's conspiring to dethrone him? In the musical Camelot, they wonder what the king is doing tonight. The night before he is to meet his new bride, Guinevere, his new queen. And the answer in the musical is, he's scared. He's scared. So do you wonder what God and his king are doing the night the kings and rulers of the earth are taking a stand and plotting against him? Well, he's not. Hunkered down in the basement, shuddering with fear, He's laughing. He's mocking them. 
He sits in the heavens, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And the word derision comes from the word deride. So you get sort of a sense he's mocking them. This reminds me of when Pontius Pilate was, who was trying to intimidate Jesus in John 19 because Jesus was refusing to answer him. And so he couldn't believe that Jesus would refuse to answer him. And so he tried to turn up the volume a little bit and he said, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus was not afraid. After laughing here in Psalm 2, God stands up and roars like a great lion king. It says in verse 4 and 5, He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. And what does God say? Well, we're told in verse 6, this is what he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is how God spoke to them in his wrath and terrified them in his fury. He said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Somehow, setting his promised king on Zion was an expression of God's wrath and fury against rebellious mankind. Strange, isn't it? John 3, 16 and 17 says that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. But here in Psalm 2, it seems to be saying that God was so angry at mankind that he sent his son to be the king in Zion. Psalm 2 may seem to contradict the New Testament and what it says about the coming of Jesus, but Paul actually says something quite similar in Romans 1.18. In 16 and 17, he's been talking about the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And then he goes on to say, for, connecting it to what he's been just talking about, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So how can the love of God and the wrath of God both be revealed in the coming of Jesus? Well, let's hold that off until the end of the sermon. But first, there are three important lessons that I would like to bring out from these verses in Psalm chapter 2. The first one is about fear. After laughing, God stands up and roars. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He's not afraid of these rebels. Isaiah 40, says that God sits above the circle of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers. So, this is 
God's reaction to these piddly little bugs that think they have the power that they can somehow resist God. But God is not afraid. In fact, we need not be afraid for God's safety. Rather, we pity those who would try to stand against him. If it were merely a matter of numbers, the nations and the peoples led by their kings and rulers would maybe have the upper hand if you just count God, but then you have to remember that God has myriads and myriads of angels on his side, so even numbers won't work. It's not a democracy. It's an absolute monarchy. It's a kingdom ruled by one who has all power. Even the strength with which men use to shake their fists at God is strength that ultimately comes from God himself. God's not afraid. And this means we need not be afraid. Even in the face of scary forces and scary times. Remember when Herod the Great came after the baby Jesus. It looked like there was a mighty power against this tiny little vulnerable child. But Joseph and Mary, even though they obediently fled, they did not need ultimately to be afraid. Rather, King Herod, Herod the Great, needed to be afraid of Jesus the Greater. Jesus the Far Greater. Herod did get something right. He knew that the little baby Jesus was the biggest threat to his reign and his stature. To most folks, you know, the baby Jesus looked like a helpless little infant. Why would a mighty king fear a little baby? It looked like Herod's kingdom dwarfed this little child. But the fact is, this little child made Herod and all the rest of the world's kings look like a speck of dust. Near the end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia's last book, The Last Battle, Queen Lucy says, In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. And this is so important for us to grasp in these days when we are experiencing such antagonism toward God in our society. It's scary, but God is not shaken. And as believers, we need to participate in God's confidence in the face of his antagonists. You don't need to be afraid of the oppressors and the tyrants of the world or the oppressors and the tyrants in our own lives, if we have any. God is much bigger than all of our adversaries. So we as believers can look danger in the face just like God did and not shrink back. It doesn't mean they can't hurt us. They did kill Jesus on the cross after all. But remember what Jesus said to Pilate just before it happened. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? The second lesson that I'd like to bring out is about the Messiah and what he's like. The Messianic prophecies given to David and through David, including Psalm 2, paint a picture of a fierce, roaring king, a lion of Judah, a mighty warrior who would dash nations to pieces like you might smash clay pots with an iron rod. After reading about how the Messiah will be set up as an expression of God's anger in Psalm 2, and how he will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces, is it any wonder why so many Jews expected the Messiah to come very differently than the way Jesus actually came? Is it any wonder that many expected him to come in anger, especially towards the peoples and nations, which to them meant the Gentiles, and in their land primarily meant the Romans who were ruling over them. It had been 600 years since they were their own kingdom, their own boss. 600 years since they had their own king. 600 years since they'd been conquered by Babylon. 600 years of living under foreign domination and foreign powers. Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and now Rome. But God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne again. That a shoot would grow up out of the cut off stump of Jesse, David's father, and become a great tree. Or as Daniel's prophecy said, a little stone would grow up and crush the great statue which represented the four great kingdoms I just mentioned. Now, Listen to Psalm 2 in light or through the ears of a first century Jew who lived under the cruel thumb of Rome and who understood Psalm 2 and these other prophecies. Filled with messianic expectation of this one who would come and do these things. The kings and rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, which of course was the location of David's palace and throne. And I will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession, He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It sounds like the coming of the Messiah was going to be an expression of God's anger toward the Gentiles. That it was going to involve the reestablishment of David's throne and its prominence. Now if Psalm 2 and other prophecies like it were all they had to govern their existence, expectations about what the Messiah would be like. They were justified to expect an all-powerful leader who would smash Rome and any other enemies of his people and take control. And that's what most of them expected. 
But when Jesus came with an approach quite different from this, they were startled and sort of didn't know what to make of it. Even John the Baptist, you remember, began to wonder. He expected to be part of a, you know, a sweeping crusade to take over the nation and all of a sudden he's sitting in prison, rotting away. And he sent a message are you the one? The very person who was assigned the duty of saying he's the one is asking himself, are you the one? And remember the apostles. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, they come to Jesus and they say, the resurrected Jesus. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking this way about the Messiah. But the fact is, Psalm 2 And the other promises to David weren't all that they had to govern their expectations about what the Messiah would be like. 300 years after David, Isaiah prophesied much about the coming Messiah. And some of what Isaiah said painted a very different picture of the coming Messiah. For instance, in Isaiah 42... Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a fainting, faintly burning wick he will not quench. And then the very well-known prophecy in Isaiah 53. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind for he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So we have these two very different pictures of the same promised Messiah. What were they supposed to do with this? Was he going to be a lion? Or was he going to be a lamb? For us it's easy. The reality has come. So we understand how both pictures fit together. We have Revelation 5, 5 and 6, for instance, where the Apostle John is is said, "Look, look at the Lion of Judah. And he looks, and there's a lamb there, standing as though slain. Just as Jesus is God and man, so Jesus is lion and lamb. 
And we know now that the Messiah comes not once, but twice. His first coming is characterized by gentleness and grace and compassion, while his second coming is characterized by wrath and judgment, or at least will involve that. For instance, in Revelation 6, 15 to 17, it tells us that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? For many Christians, Jesus is a lamb, but not a lion. He's meek, he's mild, he's never angry, he never puts his foot down. They love the story of the woman caught in adultery, but they're very uncomfortable with stories like the cleansing of the temple. For others, Jesus is a lion and never a lamb. He's fierce and powerful, he stills the storm, commands demons at will. The story of the cleansing of the temple is their favorite story, and they quote it often to justify their anger. But they don't have much time for his meekness or his mercy, as in the story of the woman caught in adultery, or for his compassion, as in the story of his raising up the widow's son in Nain. There's an important lesson for us here about tensions in the Bible. And the Bible frequently presents us with tensions. And there's a right way to handle them, and there's a wrong way to handle them. The right way to handle tensions in the Bible is to accept that we're meant to live in the tension. That God wants us to carefully preserve both sides of the tension and refuse to abandon either. But that's uncomfortable. And it's confusing. Figuring out how the two of them can both be true. And so the tendency of the flesh which is the wrong way of handling tensions, is to cling to the side of the tension we're most comfortable with and to ignore or dismiss the other. The real key is not my will, but yours be done. The words of Jesus at Gethsemane, which is not a statement merely of surrender. It's actually a request. It's a prayer. If my will is not in line with your will, Lord, then I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. He's not just giving God permission to do his will. He's saying, I want your will to be done, not mine. If my request is not in line with your will, please don't grant my request. I want your will most of all. And that's an important attitude for us to take in when it comes to tensions. We have to have a passion first that we grasp what the Lord has to say to us more than we get 
we have an understanding or a theology that feels comfortable in my human mind. Is your Jesus a lion or a lamb? He better be both. Or your Jesus isn't the Bible's Jesus. The third lesson this morning, and final one, is about the coronation of this king. God says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We haven't talked yet about how God set his king on Mount Zion and when that happened. Was it at his conception, for instance? Jesus' conception? We understand that this is pointing forward to the Christ, who is Jesus. When Gabriel came to Mary, and he said, You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High. This is like right out of Psalm 2. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That certainly focused the fulfillment of the prophecy about David's son upon Jesus. But Jesus hadn't even been conceived yet. What about at his birth? Well, certainly at his birth he was recognized as the promised son of David, born in the town of David's birth. But still, it wasn't on Mount Zion, and there was no special sign of his kingship there at his birth. Could it have been at his baptism when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and when God spoke out of heaven, You are my son? Again, seemingly quoting from Psalm 2. That was certainly an important moment. But it happened at the Jordan, not in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. So when was Jesus coronated as God's king on Zion? Well, there was a time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, when he'd actually entered the city being hailed as the son of God, as the son of David and king of Israel. When a royal robe was put on him, as well as a crown. And he was lifted up on Zion with a sign placed above him on the cross, which read, Jesus, king of the Jews. And the bystanders, as if they'd been reading Psalm 2, cried out, Truly, this is the Son of God. God has a king. And he has set that king to reign over his people and ultimately over all the nations of the earth. But that king gained his dominion, I would suggest, by dying on a cross. So how can the love of God and the wrath of God both be revealed in the coming of Jesus? Well, obviously the wrath of God is revealed in the second coming of Jesus, but it was revealed also in the first coming of Jesus. 
The wrath of God towards sin was shown in the first coming of Jesus in that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And thus the wrath of God was revealed from heaven. God's wrath towards sin was so great that only by his son being the object of that wrath could it be removed. We see Jesus as king on Mount Zion in Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. But in this vision Jesus isn't alone on Mount Zion. It goes on to say stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. You see, Jesus was lifted up on Mount Zion, but as a result of what he did there, he has been joined by those who are his children, his people. In fact, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 says, You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. God has set his king on Zion, and then he welcomes his people to come as well, where he will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. O oh, great God, our Father, We thank you that you have set your son as the king. And we thank you, Lord, that even though his reign today is real, yet it is hidden from most of mankind. But Lord, may it not be hidden from us who are his people. May we, O oh Lord, like seeing something that no one else in the room sees. May we see that over all of the sordid, chaotic, tragic realities of the world around us, may we see that there is a king who rules over it all. And may we be given grace to trust in you and to not fear when hardships and disappointments and sicknesses and losses crowd into our lives. May we remember there as well, dear Lord, that you reign over all things for your people and that there is a day coming when our Lord Jesus will return again and where the things that are now invisible 
will be made visible for all to see and every knee will bow and every tongue will be confessing that Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus will receive a name that is above every name, every knee will bow. Now, Lord, we come to the table of our Lord. And what a great celebration it is to remember what has taken place and what has been promised to us. And though, Lord, this bread and this cup are very meager to the eye, oh, Lord, we know that they contain something that is bigger than the world itself. For in them is Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.